Welcome to Conversations about Crohn's and Colitis. I'm your host, Sonia Goins. Today we're talking about inflammatory bowel disease and diet. Our guest today is University of Minnesota registered dietitian Levi Tigan. Thanks for joining the conversation. You had such a huge reaction to your last segment when you were talking about diet and the role that IBD played uh, when it comes to controlling, you know, Crohn's and colitis. So thanks for joining us, Levi Tigan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, let's just jump back from where we started last time. Um, what role does IBD, I mean, does diet play when it comes to controlling IBD? Sure. Um, well, so that, as you know, is a complicated question. Um, so there's the obvious um, relationship just between diet and health in general at a very high level, just making sure you're getting the adequate nutrients that you need to just maintain kind of baseline health. Um, but what's unique about inflammatory bowel disease is obviously the GI tract component and just the intimate relationship between diet and the GI tract. Um, and so what we are still struggling to figure out is what exactly um, is the role of diet with regards to its actual interaction with the GI tract in inflammatory bowel disease. Right. Now, is the University of Minnesota working on any studies currently? Uh, we are. Um, so we are doing one. Um, I know um, there's a similar study going on on a much larger scale. We're doing this on a much smaller scale. Um, but it's regarding a hypothesis with an alternative colitis. Uh, but we're doing – it's currently just in healthy controls, but we're doing – a. Um, diet intervention study where people go on and off either a very high animal protein fat low fiber diet or onto a very high fiber more kind of a vegan plant-based type diet um, and we're just seeing what effect that has on microbiome and the functionality of the microbiome um, and we also do a lot of work with um, fecal microbiota transplants so actual transplants of the microbiota, and we have a couple of studies, um, hopefully coming up in the near future, where we'll be doing that specifically in ulcerative colitis. Can you explain the last part of of that since you just said? Sure. Um, so there's a um, current belief, um, and it's a well-founded belief, um, that there's a strong relationship between the bacteria that's found in your gut and inflammatory bowel disease. Um, so what we're pursuing is hopefully a therapeutic option where somebody would receive a fecal microbiota transplant. So you would essentially transplant the bacteria in your gut from a healthy individual with the goal of that being the actual therapy outside of medications. Oh, interesting. Now, have you seen any good results from this study? Um, we ourselves um, have not done it. There are a couple of um, other groups around the country and around internationally um, that have done it on a small scale, and initial results are promising. Um, but there's a lot of room for improvement in terms of identifying what specific bacteria and what specific bacterial composition has the best success. Um, so at this point, it's just been random, healthy people that have been used. There hasn't been a lot of consideration given to 
what exactly the composition of the gut bacteria is. Um, and so we're trying to do it in a bit more of an informed manner as more evidence comes out and information becomes available. Wow. Okay, and you also mentioned a diet last time that had to do with different textures of food. And I've had mm-hmm. a couple people that wanted to know a little bit more about that. Is there a specific name for this diet? Yes. Um, so that is from the University of Massachusetts. It's called the Anti-Inflammatory Diet in IBD. Um, the acronym for that is AID-IBD. Um, and it is, again, it's based on the specific carbohydrate diet, but it's essentially an updated version of that brought into, um, brought up to kind of current with our recent understanding of gut bacteria and the gut microbiome. Oh, interesting. So you would like um, different foods like textures like eggs, for instance, as opposed to eating something um, soft like jello. Is that kind of how that works? Um, Yeah, a little bit along those lines. So the idea is, one, the texture component has to do in part with um, kind of just general tolerance and digestibility, depending on uh, whether or not you're experiencing a flare or kind of how severe your symptoms are. Um, But then the second emphasis of the diet is on foods long term. It's on foods that kind of help are particularly fermentable, particularly good for your gut bacteria and kind of help build what we would consider to be the kind of quote-unquote good bacteria. Okay. Now, I know not one size fits all, but like if you're having a flare, are there certain foods that you can try just to help maintain your nutrition? Um, yeah, I think, yeah, this is a very individualized question. Um, I would say from practice, a lot of what people um, turn towards are lean meats, um, broths, and um, soft foods such as like eggs. Um, I would say things that are in liquid are probably going to be, so things in soups, things that are more broken down are generally going to be better tolerated. Um, But I think in the midst of a flare, um, the specific nutrients, vitamins, minerals, that sort of stuff is important, but I think the primary nutrient concern in a flare is going to be on a higher level, things like just total calories and protein, um, which are going to get more from kind of those lean meat sort of foods. Hmm. So if you're a Crohn's or a colitis patient, how can you tell when you're really getting in trouble when it comes to your diet? Like besides losing weight, are there other signs that you can tell that you like might need to really go in and ask your doctor, hey, am I getting enough calories, that kind of thing? Sure. Um, So with regard to calories, um, that one is pretty straightforward in that um, our body weight long-term is going to be a pretty good indication of adequacy of calories. Um, So if you feel like you're unintentionally losing weight, um, then obviously that's going to be a pretty high concern. Um, Otherwise, you should probably, particularly with Crohn's and depending on where um, the location of the inflammation is, um, it's probably a good idea to get at least annual, um, some basic nutritional labs. I think that's pretty common practice anyways. Um, but at least for that kind of uh, biochemical assessment of nutrition status, that's important probably at least annually. But otherwise, from a nutrition 
standpoint with regards to calories and protein, your weight or any changes in lean mass, so if you notice an unintentional or unexpected loss in muscle, that's a pretty good indication that there might be some inflammation going on in the background that's just kind of simmering. Hmm. Well, I'm on EEN right now, um, exclusive intro nutrition, and it's not sure. fun. When do you <laughs> – those shakes are kind of nasty. When do, <laughs> when do you know that you need to – to uh, do that type of treatment? Um, so that's, yeah, something else that we're hoping to um, take up and start working on at the University of Minnesota here, too, in the near future, um, would be more of a formal trial around that. So with pediatrics, there's a very clear-cut role for the use of exclusive or even partial enteral nutrition or um, but in adults, the evidence just doesn't exist. Um, in part, a large part of that is due to just compliance issues in adults. Um, so in kids, parents can tell them this is what you're eating. In adults, you have a little bit more autonomy. And like you said, the shakes aren't always the best. Um, and so it can be hard to um, get people to be compliant with this sort of a diet. Um, but we know from pediatric populations that it can be a very effective therapy. Um, the trick is just balancing, obviously, kind of quality of life on the patient side and just what the patient is obviously willing to do as well. Right. Well, if you know your stomach is going to hurt when you eat, you're, you're more likely to be compliant. <laughs> right. Yeah. Unfortunately, it generally takes someone getting to a pretty um, extreme symptom range before um, you become more compliant. But um, I think, too, if there was more um, if we could stay more confidently, particularly in adults, that this is something that would work, we could give you a very clear-cut time period on which you'd have to follow the um, exclusive enteral nutrition. There'd probably be a lot more compliance there, too. Part of it is also that we're presenting it as, at this point still kind of an experimental therapy. Okay. Anything else that you guys are working on at the University of Minnesota? Um, from I know they always have clinical trials going on, um, and that's more on the physician side. Um, from a nutrition standpoint, um, I think those are the in the exclusive elemental, hopefully coming up soon in Crohn's. Um, otherwise, the um, diet therapy and ulcerative colitis, and hopefully this um, fecal microbiota transplant in ulcerative colitis as well. Otherwise, we've recently become a part of the DYNE-CD study, um, which is headed by the University of Pennsylvania. Oh, what um, is that? Is that the carbohydrates exclusive diet? Is that one of yep. them? Yep. So that is comparing the specific carbohydrate diet and the Mediterranean diet. Um, they're only, they've, this has been an ongoing trial for a couple of years, so they're only enrolling up through August of this year, um, but we're hoping to offer that to any patients that are interested here in the near future. I'm raising my hand. Um, real quick, tell, <laughs> tell folks, what is the Mediterranean diet? I know we touched on that last time. Yeah. Um, so it's somewhat ambiguously defined, uh, but essentially it's just going to be um, kind of a lean meats, more um, plant-based eating with an emphasis on rather than kind of animal-based saturated fats especially from like red meats, the emphasis is more on um, plant-based fats, so like oils or um, more oils from like fish, so like omega-3 fatty acids or fish oils. Okay. And are you seeing good data with that or? 
Are you guys uh, waiting for this yeah, study? Yeah, that I am um, unaware of in terms of what results they're seeing um, from the study so far. Um, like I said, we've just kind of jumped on board here in the last month or two, so we're still kind of getting everything put in place on our end. Um, but I think in general, um, with an IBD, there seems to be um, success with a diet pattern that is more plant-based. Um, so I would expect that they would be seeing success with things like the specific carbohydrate or the Mediterranean types of diets. Okay. Last question. Um, I know a lot of people keep food diet um, diaries. Do you think that's a good idea, like, for folks to, like, kind of determine, hey, well, you know, I drank dairy products and that didn't go well? Sure, sure. Um, They can be. Um, So they can play a role um, if we are looking for something very specific, um, but they could also potentially be harmful um, in that you may attribute symptoms to something that maybe wasn't the true cause of symptoms. Um, So what's particularly complicated with Uh, nutrition therapy is just that our diets are extremely varied um, as well as our sleep patterns and just the amount of stress that we experience day to day, um, all of which can influence GI symptoms. And so the potential risk with keeping too um, stringent of diet records would just be that you may uh, be attributing symptoms to certain foods and limiting certain foods that aren't necessarily the cause of symptoms. Um, if you're in a pretty good place, there's just kind of mild underlying symptoms that are persisting, then there might be a role for diet records um, to identify maybe if there is a specific food. But I would say um, on a more broad scale, um, there's not necessarily a role for diet records just because they can almost end up making your diet more restrictive than it would potentially need to be. Huh. Interesting. Well, I know you want to put out the advice, like, if you do change your diet, to check with your GI doctor before switching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any, other, yeah. any other major things that people should look out for? Because there's so much out there on the Internet, on Twitter and Facebook. Any other precautions uh, folks with inflammatory bowel disease should look out for? Yeah. Um, well, so I would just say it's a very, obviously a very individualized disease, um, but on a large scale, I would just be wary of specific uh, recommendations. Um, I think we have a pretty good sense um, that there's a relationship between diet and IBD, but we're pretty far away from knowing a lot of specifics. Um, I think we're at a point where we could say kind of general diet patterns, more of a plant-based sort of a diet. Um, but if you see things for kind of specific supplements or specific um, foods to avoid or that sort of thing, I would be wary of that sort of stuff um, just because it may work for one person, but it's not necessarily something that could be applied on kind of a large population scale. So no unicorn tears, right? <laughs> not yet, no. <laughs> we'll, we'll try. We'll try. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you uh, joining the conversation. All right. Well, again, thank you for having me. It was great chatting with you.